Hello there, and welcome to episode 18 of the Game Pit. This is the first picking over the bones of 2014. Hello, we are, as usual, in our picking over the bones episodes, going to be talking over a few games we've played recently and give you our thoughts and possibly have a couple of interesting discussions about them. Uh, the two games I'm going to be introducing this week are Zombicide and Glass Road and Sean. Yeah, my two games are going to be 1960, The Making of the President, and Dungeon Roll. You can catch all of our episodes on 2d6.org. We are members of the Dice Tower Network. Head to dicetowernetwork.com and you can find lots of great board game podcasts. If you want to keep in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at GamePitPodcast. Or if you want to email us, it's thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. So the first game we're going to discuss this week is Zombicide. It was a 2012 release. It came through Kickstarter, one of Kickstarter's big success stories. It's for one to six players. The length of time varies greatly with scenarios from as short as 15 minutes up to several hours. It was designed by Raphael Guiton, Jean-Baptiste Lullien and Nicolas Raoult. And it is... Published by Cool Mini or Not. Now, Cool Mini or Not are uh, a company who have really found their feet via Kickstarter and have published other games such as Super Dungeon Explore, uh, Guilds of Cadwallon, and Sedition Wars. Zombicide is themed around an outbreak of zombies, and you play cooperatively and you're attempting to be survivors. And there are lots of different scenarios within the game, and whichever scenario you're playing, you're going to have a certain objective to try and achieve. The game comes with lots and lots of minis, depending upon how much of this you've bought, because there are tons of expansions available. It's gone into a season two. There are so many. I'm not going to go into them at all, but there are minis that represent the survivors and the zombies who are going to be trying to eat the survivors. It comes with tiles, which make modular maps, again, scenario dependent. It comes with uh, lots and lots of tokens, which represent different states within the game, objectives, where doors are on the maps, cars which can be driven. And also there's a couple of decks of cards there. There's Mostly they're going to be zombie cards, which tell you how the zombies act, and there's going to be equipment cards, which the survivors are really going to be desperate to get hold of. So how do you play Zombicide? Well, firstly, you choose one of those scenarios. Each player chooses the survivors. The number of survivors is going to be dependent upon how many players there are. As I said, it scales from one to six. And it's as simple as choosing a mission, setting up the map according to the mission parameters, and then dealing some cards out, and pretty much you're ready to go. It's that easy to set up and get going. On a player's turn, they can do two actions. And this is what they can do. They can move one zone on the map. The zone is either going to be outside, and those zones are delineated by lines across each of the roads, or they're going to be inside where they can move through rooms. If they are inside, one of the other actions they can do is search. In terms of searching, it's real simple. You just take the top card from the equipment deck, and you can then either arm yourself with that or see what it is. It could be an objective. It could be some ammunition for a weapon. There's different things you can have that are going to be useful for you during your struggle to survive. You can open a door if you have the right sort of equipment and those equipment cards will tell you whether you can open a door with a piece of equipment. And also an interesting thing they tell you is whether they can do that either in terms of making noise or doing it silently. And noise is something I'm going to come back to. 
The other thing they can do is they can do combat, and combat comes in two different types. You can do ranged combat, again, if you have an equipment card or weapon that allows you to do that, or you can do melee combat. Both work very simply. You've simply got a number of dice as indicated by the piece of equipment you're using. You roll that number of dice, and there will also be a number on that equipment card which tells you if you roll that number or higher, you're going to score a number of hits according to the damage that that card does. So, example, a card says roll two dice, the number on it is a four, any results that are four or higher is going to do one damage. The other things you can do is you can shuffle your inventory around. Each survivor has space for five cards, two in their hands, three in their backpack, and if you take this action you're able to both swap your equipment around from your hands to your backpack and also trade cards with any survivor that's in the same area as you. You can fulfill an objective. Lots of missions have objective tokens in an area. If you're in an area with an objective token, take one action and you can pretty much do whatever that objective is, again, scenario dependent. You can move in or out of a car. Some scenarios have cars are basically designed to plow into big groups of zombies and mow them all down, which is both a good and a bad thing. It makes lots of noise, gets you lots of experience points, and noise and experience points I'm going to come back to. So one of the actions is you can be noisy. How does that work? Zombies always move towards A, any survivor they can see, and then if they can't see a survivor, they're going to move towards the noisiest area on the map. And lots of the actions you do are going to create noise, and the survivors create noise just by being in an area. So if you've got lots of survivors together, and they're hacking away at doors, or they're firing off guns and making noise, or if they choose to make noise, you know that's where the zombies are going to move. So things aren't random, you can kind of predict where they're going to go. Zombies aren't supposed to be clever, right? We should be having the edge on them, we'll be able to predict their movement. And the last thing you can do is you can just pass your actions if you think you're best off sitting tight and waiting for the board to develop. Once every survivor has done their two actions, we get to the zombie phase. Now, the zombies are going to do one of three things. First of all, if a zombie is in the same area as a survivor, they're going to attack. And it's as simple as each zombie does one point of damage to a survivor. Every survivor can take two points of damage and then they're dead. So you do not want to be stuck in an area with any zombies, certainly not a group of zombies because you're going to die very quickly. The second thing is, if a zombie on the board is not in the same area as a survivor, they're going to move towards a survivor they can see, or as I said earlier, they're going to move towards the noisiest area on the board. Zombies just move one space, it's very simple. And the last thing they're going to do is they're going to spawn. Now this is interesting. Zombies spawn by turning over a card from the zombie deck, and that will tell you how many zombies come out at each spawn point. What's interesting is there are different threat levels on those zombie cards. They range up through yellow, orange, red, and as the survivors get more experience points, whichever survivor has the highest number of experience points, you check their level, whether they're on a blue, yellow, orange, or red level, and that's the level of zombies that spawn. You get one experience point for every zombie that you kill, and some objectives will give you a certain number of experience points, for example, five for completing an objective. If one character is killing all the zombies, they're going to level up very quickly. However, that's going to mean that more and more zombies spawn because the higher the level of the most experienced survivor, the more zombies that are going to come out and they're going to get tougher and the more difficult types of zombies are going to be coming out. So that gives you an idea that you need to kind of balance the group and make sure no one's getting too far ahead. In terms of types of zombies, there are four types that come with the base game. They're pretty much broken down into uh, normal zombies. They have one hit point, they move one space, take one action. You've got the fast zombies, the runners. They're the same as normal zombies, they do one point of damage, they have one hit point, but they activate twice every turn. So if they're one area away from you, they will move in and then attack, you have to be careful of them. There are the larger zombies, which are the same as normal ones, but they need two points of damage to kill them. 
And then the last one is there's the Abomination, which is huge and is scenario-dependent when he comes out. And basically, he's a lot tougher than all the other ones. As survivors go through those experience levels, however, in order to counter the larger number of zombies coming out, they are going to get some more skills. There's a little bit of a branching tree, a little bit of customization there. You can choose different things that you wish to do. So all survivors are going to do is attempt to complete the objective, and then they are going to win the game, or otherwise if they all die, not just one of them, if they all die, they lose the game. There's a walkthrough mission to teach everyone the rules, which is very simple. However, the missions do become much more complicated. They move up through blocking two entry points of zombies, clearing out a zombie nest, surviving reaching the red danger level, so having someone get to the very highest level experience level and trying to survive there, or possibly reaching a bunker. That's how you play Zombicide. Sean, any thoughts? Right, first off, I will say about this game is that if you're going to look at it in depth and look at it mechanically, I don't think it's going to hold up to serious scrutiny. Now, that's because possibly not enough variety with the tiles. Maybe the characters don't play differently enough. There are some people that say that some of the characters are much better than others, so you're always going to choose them if you want to win. The rule book is terrible it's awful it's all over the place it's really hard it's quite a simple game and it makes a meal out of teaching this quite simple game their scenarios they do kind of go on take you on a roller coaster ride of difficulty the rule book suggests that they just go up on a gradient and the next one is always going to be a little bit more difficult but i don't think it works out like that some of them are ridiculously hard some of them if you want to cheat or not cheat but if you they're off there are cheats in it that you can just kill it off really quickly. There are flaws in this game. It's also a £70 game. It's a lot of money to pay. What do you think about some of these negative aspects of the game? Well, I'm taken aback. I thought you were going to come out way more positively there, Sean. Um, <laughs> I'll take on the, kind of the, the four issues, I guess, that you raised there. The first one with regards to simplicity of rules. Well, whenever I'm teaching this to anyone, when they ask me, I say to them, Think of the simplest way that could be. That's what the rule is. There are very few exceptions to rules. Everything's very logical. Everything makes sense. It's about the cleanest set of rules I can think of for a game, which I think is a strength to this. Now, we're going to talk about sort of personal tastes in terms of this. This is a strongly thematic game. Now, some themes work when you go into a lot of depth. Okay, so something like a, a Middle-earth quest, a large Tolkien game that you really want to get into the whole background and the milieu and, and enjoy yourself this is just a zombie game i don't think zombie games should be massively sort of deep or try and get under the skin of the zombies or whatever you're trying to understand everyone it's get in kill a load of them and try and get out as quickly as you can under pressure these rules work for that in terms of variety of characters i think each of the characters have got slight differences as you go up in experience levels they can become different characters are better for certain things than for others if you've got a character who's got a free search and you're trying to do the scenario where you want to collect a certain amount of food, we are trying to keep that dude alive while the guys who can move quicker or start with a better gun might be trying to keep the, the zombies off their back. I think it adds to the team flavour that some characters are better than others. And I don't agree they don't play the same. I've got no problem at all with the rulebook. I actually think the rulebook's pretty good. Especially clever is what they do is they give you that walkthrough scenario, which is the first scenario. It's really simple. It takes 10 or 15 minutes. I can just teach people this by playing it. I teach them all the basic rules by doing a one walkthrough mission. And as we get to the next mission we want to do, then we 
just introduce anything that's new there. And because they've got the basic understanding and framework of the rules, then it, it doesn't become a problem. I get the idea that the scenario is not laid out in ascending difficulty. So it starts very simple, and the next one is medium, and then it goes really hard, and then it's kind of medium again, and then it's pretty easy again. And they are quite variable. And as with any of these types of games, each play of each mission is quite variable. So I have had it flop, for example. We played a mission, we got lucky, and the first two zombie cards were, were quiet, nothing happened, few cards, what have you. So the game became ridiculously easy, and it was a flop, I was disappointed. It's not the tightest of games. But I think where the longevity comes in and where the simple rule set lives or dies is the variety in scenarios. Is there the variety in the scenarios to keep the game alive and to keep you interested and to present you with a different challenge in all these different ways? And for me, so far, it is hitting that challenge. The different scenarios are keeping it alive. I'm having to think different ways. We're having to work in different manners. Different characters are more valuable in different scenarios. So it's working for me so far. I think I should come clean now. I think I was mainly playing devil's advocate there. They're just some of the issues that people could have with the game. And I could with a different style of game. But all of those, I really don't care. First off... This game is amazing looking and you get so much in it. So, to be honest, I'd pay the 70 quid. You just get so much in that box and it's of a, such a high quality, Ronan. It is, for sure. It's definitely got the, the factor where you get it out and it just looks good. It looks like a zombie game. They haven't tried to overfuss it, but all the minis... I say the only problem with the minis is that one of the survivors is pretty much grey. He might be beige, but everyone mistakes him for a zombie. Every game I've played, someone's turned around and gone, oh, no, I finished this over the zombie. You go, oh, no, it's Doug. It's okay. It's just Doug. So other than that, yeah, great quality components. Again, the tokens they have are all very clear. The iconography on the cards all makes perfect sense. I think it's a well-made game. It's really well put together. Something I will throw back to a slight negative, Sean, is is it a bit too simple for people we consider real hobby gamers? First off, there's, there's, there's a solution to every problem. When Doug dies, he turns. There you go. You've got a zombie who was a survivor. Even more thematic. <laughs> um, Says the man with all the expansions. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I think so. The, some people, and this was the point I was trying to get to earlier, some people are going to look at this mechanically and... If that's the way you view games, I'm not saying that's the wrong way to view games. For me, I always look at, I love to get a bit of theme, a bit of a bit of feeling into a game. And I think this is one of those games where you do have to kind of get invested. Now, Ronan always talks about it in something like Sentinels of the Multiverse. You've got to get invested in the story, what's around you. Just get excited about each turn of those cards. And Zombicide, to, the, to a big degree, I feel, is like that. You have to get invested. You have to sort of welcome this feeling of doom. How are we going to work together to get out of this situation? And I do think, mechanically, if you don't look at it that way it might not stand up and a lot of people will not like it very much because of that see i think that usually i do like to look at the mechanics of a game and the pacing of it and how tight it is and how it works i am not really a big fan of zombie themes it doesn't really grab it this is a zombie game i'm like oh great a zombie game another one this brings what i want in a zombie game and that is clean quick rules in which the emphasis is on the predicament you're in 
not in trying to game the game. It helps you immerse yourself by not having you have to worry or fuss about any nonsense. This pairs it down, and that's what I really like about it. It's got the feeling of, this is what we want to do. We've done it in the simplest way possible. Go out and enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. In many ways, I think this is a more evolved and the big daddy of the Todd Breitenstein Zombies game, which was very simple, not the best quality components, and a much... Do I want to say dumbed down version of this? Maybe not, because there's not a lot to this either, but definitely a lot more simple version of this game. This game, I think, has just taken everything that was good about zombies and made it better, in my opinion. And I, I liked zombies, but this, I think, trumps it. Yeah, I thought zombies was absolutely awful. (laughs) <laughs> I enjoyed it. It was a little bit on the simple side. Uh, just... Not even that it was simple. No, I just it was endless. It was just endless. There was no fun. There was nothing. <laughs> this has definitely added fun. Well, Absolutely. Oh, I just wanted to join the zombies in zombies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sean. Do you want to sum up for us then your thoughts on Zombicide? Yeah, this is a massively thematic game. There's just lashings of tension with impending doom just hanging in the air if you get involved and invested in it. It's a wonderful looking game. It's a real co-op. You do have to work together and you have that feeling that if you don't work together, it's all going to go wrong. Also, what I will just say before I finish is there is a little bit more strategy than it first appears because you, you do have to balance that threat level at the top. You do have to be careful about how much noise you make. Do you split up and lure the zombies away from you? You do have to be careful what players you put out in front because you can't shoot from a distance at people. So there is a lot of things to think about. Maybe not a massive amount, but enough to make this a little bit strategic. And I like that. It's a very, very fun game. And I don't care about all the negative stuff I said at the beginning. For sure, each scenario means that the team is going to have to play slightly differently. And also what I find in this game is that conversation continues throughout the game. People are chatting to each other. You do have to work together. Even if there's not that many rules, people have to go, I'm going to go in this direction. Are you going to cover there? I'm going to open this door. Are you guys ready to cover that door? And it is something that you do have to have some kind of teamwork with. It's not for hardcore gamers. It's not for Euro gamers. It's not for people who are looking for a massive gamey experience it's a gateway or family game it looks great it's really well made the rules i don't know who's complaining about the rule book the rule book is really good for me simple lays it out that walkthrough is something that so many games of this level require an easy way into the game something that for example firefly got horribly wrong because their intro scenario they came out with recently was a four hour long trawl through every rule they've gone the other way and gone no let's just get the hardcore rules down in 10 or 15 minutes no one's sitting around listening for 20 minutes to rules so when we learn this we learn it together and we're having fun it's a real solid game it's a game to just sit around and have some fun Usually we talk about games like that, they're mindless, but this isn't mindless. It's not complete fluff, but it is an easy, enjoyable experience, and I'm really happy to have it. It's a good, solid game. And that's Zombicide. Okay, first up from me 
in this episode is 1960, The Making of the President. This was released in 2007 from Z-Man Games and designed by Christian Leonard and Jason Matthews. Christian did Campaign Manager 2008 and Founding Fathers. And Jason Matthews did Twilight Struggle, 1989, Dawn of Freedom. And he also had a hand in Campaign Manager and Founding Fathers. It plays just the two players with a rough playing time of 90 minutes. And it's a political area control card-driven campaign game. And it's going to recreate the epic presidential election between Mr. Kennedy and Mr. Nixon. How do you play this game? Well, the aim of it is to win the election by gaining support in the individual states, in the media and on the key issues, using campaign points and events on cards. The game takes place over nine rounds. Each one of these rounds is going to represent one week of the campaign trail. And apart from round six, where the two players recreate the famous debates, and round nine, where the final scoring takes place, all of the rounds replicate the same format as follows. The first phase is the initiative phase. And what you're going to do here is draw cards and determine initiative by drawing one cube at a time from a bag filled with 10 red and 10 blue cubes, representing the two candidates. The first player to get two of their colour wins initiative and decides who will go first in the order for the remainder of the turn. The cubes are then placed in the player's supply. The next one is the main part of the game, I suppose, which is the activity phases. You do five activity phases. This is where the players get to play the cards in their hand. When a card is played, its player first takes the indicated number of rest cubes from the supply and place them in the rest cube zone, which is depicted by a coffee cup on the board. They can then do one of the following actions. They can play the event on the card by following the text. Both player decks have cards that will help and hinder both players. So if a player decides to do something other than play the event, they can also pay two momentum markers to stop the card event being used by the other player. But this must be done before the card is played. The reason behind this is that the opposition player may play one momentum marker to use that event should it benefit them or hinder you. Some cards are persistent events and they stay in play and resolve later either at the debate or the end of game or they simply stop other events being played. The next thing you can do in this phase is campaign in the states by placing support cubes equal to the number of campaign points on the card. You can never have two colours on the state, so if a player has cubes in a state, the other must spend the cubes that they are putting on to remove them before they place cubes onto the board. However, if the opponent has four cubes already in that state, or the candidate token is on the state, meaning that Mr Nixon or Mr Kennedy is visiting that state campaigning, then the opponent must do a what is called a support check where a cube is drawn from the bag, and if it matches the colour of the active player, then it says normal, the opponent's cube is removed, or your cube is added. But if it's the colour of the opponent, then the active player's cube is spent with no effect, so you effectively lose that cube. So the next thing you can do is you can spend campaign points to advertise in the regions, which is done in the same way as with the states. The benefit is that should you control the media in the area, you do not have to make the aforementioned support checks in that area. Next up, you can spend campaign points to position yourself on the key issues. There's three key issues, and this will allow you to reap rewards linked with the events and in the momentum phase later. Lastly, 
the player can exhaust their candidate card. Both players will get one candidate card. You turn it to the other side and you get five campaign points to turn into support cubes. That's the most you can get in the game. So the next phase is the momentum phase. This is where players will now remove half of their momentum markers and then receive rewards of either momentum markers and or endorsement cards for leading on the key issues. The rewards are greater or lesser depending on where the issue is on the track, with one being the best and three the worst. Then players must remove one support cube from each issue and a player with dominance in the media can rearrange two of the issues on the track. Lastly is the campaign strategy phase where players choose one remaining card, place it in their campaign strategy card pile and this will be used later in the debate round. The cubes accumulated in the rest cube zones are now added to the bag. So the more cubes you accumulate in your rest zones, the more chance of your colour coming out of the, the bag. I think it's called the political capital bag. So I did say two of the rounds are slightly different. You've got the debate in this turn, which is turn six, by the way. Play moves to a separate debate board and players can use the cards that they have kept aside in their campaign strategy card pile and they will add to each side of the debate depending on whose logo is on the card. Once two cards are placed on one side of an issue, that issue is scored by totaling the campaign points on the cards each side. The first issue one gets the winner two states of support cubes, the second three cubes and the last four cubes. So it's a bit of cat and mouse here where you're trying to get people maybe to spend their high points early so you get the later rewards or do you just go straight for them? Anyway, we'll talk about that, I'm sure. And all the remaining cards are just discarded. Now, election day, which is the last turn, turn nine. I'm not going to run through the whole process, but here the players will now have a chance to add more support cubes to the states, resolve any election day events, and resolve the voting of any undecided states, those states with no cubes of either colour. The players with the cubes on a state will then take that state seal and add up the amount of votes that that state is worth. For example, Missouri is worth 13 points and New York is worth a bumper 45 points. The total number of votes points available is 537, and to win, a player must get 269. There's a couple of bits that I haven't really covered, like moving the candidates and restrictions on placing cubes in states, etc. But hopefully you have some understanding of a game that, although it plays fairly simple, takes quite a while to explain due to the options available. So, there you go, Ronan. So, Sean... How much did you know about the process of the election of a US president before you played this game? Stop stealing my points. One of my major points of this was going to be how much I learned about the US electoral process. <laughs> it's just, it's an education. It's amazing. I could actually follow the last couple of <laughs> elections in America because of this game. It's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. It's <laughs> In learning the game, you're actually learning how that process works. Well, certainly at least to as much of a level as we will ever need to know. The theme is incredible. Now, we just talked about Zombicide having a theme, and that's what people generally think about when we talk about theme. You know, dungeons or zombies or rolling lots of dice, what have you. This goes to show that you can take Euro mechanics and card-driven and deep, complex game and absolutely swill it round in theme till it comes out. And you, you actually feel the pressure. You feel like there's something riding on this. You really want to win. Now, whether it's because of... The history of the two main characters and how they both ended up 
looking through the spectacles of history and how important this election turned out to be in the long run. I don't know. But when you are playing this, you care. You feel like you really are one of these candidates and you are trying to win. But Sean, I need your help. How do I cope with the pressure of playing this game? I don't know. I haven't managed it yet. I think you probably just need to take take a five-minute coffee break and just sit down. I'm running just... for the presidency. I haven't got five minutes for a coffee break. <laughs> Listen, there's even a coffee cup on the actual player board. Come how on. Many, how many times do you think I've tried to drink out of that? <laughs> I mean, I'm it up is... my sleeves. I'm mopping my brow. I'm reading papers left, right and centre. It's I get too into it. You can actually imagine like the stress that goes through a presidential candidate at any stage, but this is one of the key, key times in American politics and what these guys must have gone through. It's just such a thematic game. And not only, as Ronan said, not only do you learn about the electoral process, you also learn about the history of this election because the cards all tell a story. Half the card, you're looking at the cards and you're going, oh, what's that headline? I'm going to research that. Oh my God, did that really happen? It is deep, absorbing and tense. Every game should come with a cardiologist. (laughs) In terms of that intense pressure now, some of that is the real clever design of the cards because... Every card you play, the decision you're making to play is difficult. Now, you're drawing from that common pile for these cards. And Sean said the events, some of them favoured either of the candidates. And the best cards can give you the most campaign points. So you're sacrificing a lot of campaign points in order to play a good event. Or when you're playing one of the other players' cards to get that load of campaign points, you know you're offering that chance to jump in and make that event happen and it really is tough to decide what to do with every single card because it's one of those typical two-player things. You can see the board. You can see what would most hurt you. So therefore you think that is what is obvious to your opposition player. And obviously that's not true, but that's how you feel all the way through. Every card you play is tough, Sean. It really is. It took me a little while to sort of get my head around describing this game. But when you factor in that what I've described is just the basic how to play it. And there's so much behind every every thought, every decision. If you make one decision, it really will send ripples through everything else you're trying to do. If you do go for those big numbers on the campaign points and, and use them, they've always got something good on them, though. Do you use that? Do you waste them to get support cubes onto the board? Or do you hold them back to, to win the debate? Every choice you make, it impacts on about four or five different things you could have done and that that's the beauty of this game you're never going to stay on top of it all but you just got to try and try your best to i suppose uh one of the other issues you got well, i find it hard to decide is the balance between what feels like is the real heart of the game and that's trying to get those support cubes into place in states to secure those votes and the periphery issues the endorsements the getting the media back in the trying to move the issues in your favour how do you strike a balance Sean how do you go about it can I just ask you a well a couple of questions and I undecided myself now the first question would be the debate does it add enough is it a welcome break or is it just kind of tacked on because it happened in the election and you just mentioned the media and advertising is that really important 
Okay, I think I'll take the second one first. In terms of the media and advertising, I haven't decided yet whether uh, what it takes to get on top of is worth the sacrifice. So if it becomes a tit-for-tat, it's one of the most tit-for-tat areas of the game, basically. It's, you know, either you're doing it or I'm doing it. And if you get into a cat fight over it, you're drawing away both your own and your opponent's resources into that area, which leaves other areas fallow. So it almost seems like it balances itself out. If you can get a cheap win in there, then I guess go for it. If you're going to start getting embroiled, it kind of becomes, well, we're both going down the same road here. Are we getting distracted? I'm not sure. I'm not expert enough at the game to really make a decision. But if I can get a cheap win there, I'll take it. The debate, obviously, is one of the most remembered issues with regards to the campaign itself. And it can feel when you're coming up to it, it takes a lot of effort for nothing but let's not forget that you can place nine cubes out of that debate now that's nine cubes your opponent can't place that's an 18 cube swing which when you look at it that way that's massive so it can feel secondary while you're playing because you keep on getting distracted by things that are more in your face and then when you look at it you go oh that's a lot of cards and a lot of thought I've had to put into for just two or three cubes but don't forget all those cubes count double they're the only cubes in the game that you're getting directly instead of the other person so for an 18 cube swing well that feels pretty important this game it really does lend itself to the subject math the closest board I can think of that comes close to it is the rolling freight board but the rolling freight board just had big lumps of stuff over the actual scoring track. And now there isn't necessarily a scoring track on this, so happy days. Even the coffee cups actually do something, the, the way you put your rest cubes. The cards, we've, we've talked about them, all, all really good quality. They teach you things about the history of this election. All the state seals are actually the proper state seals. It's just a really well thought out and well put together game. I really didn't know where you were going with rolling freight there, so I'm glad you qualified it. It's kind of got that character to the board around the edge, whereby yeah, yeah, real probably, life things on the board. Probably didn't explain that as well as I could have, but in my mind it made sense. I was trying to follow you, buddy, but you lost me at some stage. Yeah, it is very well designed. For a game with so many different options, you don't want to be overwhelmed. You don't want to be looking at the board and not be able to see what goes on. The fact that you can only have one colour cube in each state is a very important design decision because that keeps it very clean. Everything is kept quite clean so that you're not having to interpret too much information at once in order to make your decisions because the decisions are tough enough as it is. There's such a myriad of branching different ways you can go that you're right, good strong design here, good components, it's very impressive. I mean, what I'll say as well is that I do think there's plenty of replayability in this because there's loads of cards. There's loads of avenues to victory. If something goes wrong for you, you can always try a different route. And so I do think you can come back to this again and again and again and not have quite the same game. I think the biggest challenge to replayability is mental and physical stamina. (laughs) Okay, on that note... Ronan, do you want to sum up for us? Mental and physical stamina, neither of which are our forte. (laughs) (laughs) This is a game for two committed and focused players who are willing to embrace it, learn the system, accept the fact that they're not going to be great at playing it to start with, not try and game it too much, but embrace the theme, but most importantly, who want to win, but won't take offence at the dirty tricks that are going to be pulled against them. If you take that on, if you take on the role, if winning this game becomes important to you, you will find a deep, fantastic gaming experience 
which will stay with you, which will make a mark and, well, will make a gamer out of you if you can live through a couple of games of this. Yeah, well said. For me, I've said it before, this game is deep, tense, absorbing. It's got loads of replayability. I think the only downside for some people will be that confrontation side of it. A lot of people don't like confrontation this in your face in a game. I love it. I want to play it again. I want to play it now. (laughs) That's how much I love it. So there you go. That's 1960. So my second game for this episode is Glass Road. It's for one to four players. It's a 2013 recent release, just come out in Essen. The playing time is, it says 75 minutes on the box. For once, I think that's an overestimation. This is quite a quick game between 45 and 60 minutes. You should be done. It's from a big name designer. That's Uwe Rosenberg. He is the man behind Agricola, Caverna, Aura et Labora, Leave, Bonanza, and a few other games. One of the biggest names around at the moment, which is why this release has got lots of interest. It's published in English by Z-Man Games, by Fordan Spieler, and originally in German. So what's it all about? Well, the Glass Road apparently is kind of like a tourist attraction at the moment in Bavaria, which is built around the traditional glassmaking industry, which has been there for centuries and centuries. And in this game... Each player in a Euro style is going to be managing their own glassworks. And in doing so, they're going to be managing the landscape within their area of the uh, Bavarian forests. They're going to be cutting down the trees in the forest and utilising the wood it gives them. They're going to be manipulating the landscape by putting in sand pits and ponds and groves of other trees. And probably most importantly, they're going to be looking to clear space to build some buildings because that's where all your points are going to come from at the end of the game. In terms of what's in the game, each player gets 15 specialist cards. Each player has an identical deck. Any difference is on their backs. And these specialist cards are really what drive your actions in the game. We're going to play over four rounds. And each player is going to choose five of these specialists. And during a round, they're only going to be able to play three of them. Now, what do the specialists do? What they're going to do is each specialist has got two actions on their card those actions are going to let you do things like manipulate that landscape as i said so change the forest into other types landscape which is going to get you resources which we'll talk about in a minute it's also going to let you produce resources from the landscape into your glassworks which you're going to be able to use to create things it's going to allow you to convert some of your resources into other resources And probably most importantly, like I said, some of these actions on the specialist cards are going to let you build buildings. And like I said, there are two actions on each of these cards, and this is how it works. Everyone chooses five cards from their hands of 15. Then simultaneously, each player chooses one card from the hand of five and puts it face down in front of them. Then in player order, you reveal your card. You ask every other player, have they got that particular card in their hand at that time? So if they've played it in front of them, it doesn't count. If anyone has, they must reveal it from their hand and play it to the right of their board. Then anyone who has revealed that card at that time gets to choose one of the two actions and perform them. If when a player turns over the card they've chosen, no one else has that card in their hand, then they are going to get to do both actions on the card. The trick to this is, off the five cards you have in each round, 
you can only choose to play three of them. And what you're trying to do is, with the other two, you're trying to have other players play them so that they may be played out of your hand, out of turn, if you like. So you're trying to get all five cards used, but it's not entirely up to you whether that's going to happen or not. Like I said, you're going to be using them to manipulate the landscape, produce resources, build buildings. So the resources, what have we got? There are eight different resources in the game. Six of those are basic resources, and... They're going to be building up on one side of a production wheel, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. The other two ones that which you can produce are glass and brick. Of those resources, you're really looking to build up glass, wood, brick and clay in order to build buildings. So how do we keep track of these resources? Well, everyone has two production wheels. And the resources are split in half, and the top one is where you have some resources which help you make brick, and the bottom one is where you have some resources that help you make glass. The easiest way to work out how these wheels work is by seeing them in action, but I'll give you a quick description. On the wheel, there are two hands. One side of the main hand is the area for the produced resource. That's either going to be brick or it's going to be glass, depending upon the top or bottom wheel. To the other side of that hand is all the raw resources. When you gain raw resources, you move a counter around the wheel, counting up. So if I gain three water, let's say, I move the water token three spaces clockwise around. If there are at least one of each raw resource to the right of the main hand, that hand's going to tick around until it gets to the point where some of those raw resources are in the zero space again. And what that does is it creates the produced resource on the other side. Because the hand ticks around, if glass is sitting in zero, if the hand ticks once, then there's going to be one glass produced. If it ticks over again, there's going to be two glass produced. And that happens automatically, which isn't always exactly how you want it to go. It's something you have to be aware of. But brick and glass production is almost automated. You need to be aware of that. But like I said, you're going to need that brick and glass because that's how you're going to build buildings. The other thing you can do, I said, you can manipulate the landscape. Now, each player has got their own board, which starts off with a couple of pits, a couple of ponds, a couple of groves. And different specialists use those particular landscape features in order to produce different resources. There's also loads of forest on there. Some of the specialists let you clear that forest to give you spare gaps, which is going to allow you to make more pits, ponds, groves, or also spaces for buildings. So you're going to manage your own little part of the landscape there. I've been talking about buildings all the way through and they're the heart of how you score in the game. Each round there are going to be 12 different buildings available to you of the 93 which are in the game and they are split into three different types. There's going to be four processing buildings, four immediate buildings and four bonus buildings. And what that means is the processing buildings are going to let you do something with raw resources, turn one to the other, change them up somehow, be a bit more efficient. The immediate buildings are going to give you an immediate bonus, and that's it. And the bonus buildings are going to let you score points for certain things at the end of the game, be it for having certain resources, for having certain landscape features, whatever it might be. Any of these buildings which let you take actions during the game, for example, the processing buildings, basically, you're going to be able to take them at any point during the game. You don't have to wait for your round. So it's something you can be getting on with. It gives you more flexibility, those processing buildings. It is probably worth noting at this point that there is one building which has been rules errated out of the game because you can create an infinite loop with it. So just be aware of that. It's the uh, roofing company. If you've got the game, don't play with the roofing company. I'm not sure it's something I'd ever discover, but apparently that can happen so everyone's going to choose their hand play cards manipulate their areas get some resources build some buildings and score some points at the end of the game 
Sean, that's Glass Road. It's from a big name designer. It's made a big impact. Have you got any thoughts? I am going to cut straight to the chase with this one. And my main problem with this game is I really don't think it's long enough to get a real engine going it's not long enough to really get into the meat of the game and it's not short enough to be just like a fun filler you just find yourself in a little bit of limbo for me i like a a euro economy game where i get a nice engine going and that comes through in the end but this one you, you feel like you're just starting to get an engine going and the game's over i think that we're kind of coming two different ways onto the same issue it's not an issue exactly of length for me with this game. It's an issue, there's too much to manage for it to be a quick, lighter sort of a game, but there are too few decisions for it to be a proper hour-long Euro, like you say, engine-building kind of a game. You're managing 10 different resources here, which is a lot to try and keep track of and a lot to sort of get an engine going out of for a game in which you're making maybe... 20 decisions maybe really you're making 12 decisions because you're going to choose four times three cards that you really want to play during your turn and then you're going to have a guess for the other eight cards and think well maybe someone will be using those and that'll be quite nice to have that's the problem for me here is that the decisions are really limited the overheads i think production wheels are real nice i think they're more than just a nice gimmick they're, they're functional but still i'm having to think about 10 different resources and I'm not getting a lot back for that. I will just quickly address your other issue in terms of getting an engine going. My other issue with that is that it's very hard to be strategic in the game. You might think you might want to go in a certain area. You might think, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to manage my landscape in order to get more ponds, which is then going to give me lots of water. I'll get some processing buildings, which will allow me to use water to turn into something else, what have you. But you know what, if the buildings don't come up to complement each other, it's just not going to work. And the buildings only refresh after each round, so they're going to refresh four times. And the building that hasn't been bought stays there. So sometimes that building market can get a bit stagnant. And it's very hard to get any sort of a planned strategic engine going. I look back to the first time we both played this game. I think you played it once before. And we played it for the first time together. And we kind of looked at each other. And we kind of said together, I really don't know what to do. I don't know what's going to benefit me. Now, I hadn't played it before. You played it once. So you were like, well, I've played it once and I still don't know. So then we went away thinking, okay, you know what? It's a new game. Maybe we just have to learn it, get into it a little bit. Then we'll see where the strategies lie and what have you. We played it again. And after playing it a few times each, and we looked at each other and we said, I don't know what to do. That's the problem. What do you do? Is there a strategy other than that card drafting thing, which is can be quite fun? Is there anything else to this game? There's a real steep barrier to entry. You're looking at 15 cards, which give you a big old variety of different things you can do and different strategies and different ways of developing. And you just don't know which way to go. There's... Now, when I first played it, I thought, OK, that's fine. Like you said, when I play it a few times, it will start making more sense. But it didn't, because the buildings, there's there's such a big variety of them, and you're going to see so few that going in a certain direction might just not work out, and there's nothing you can do about that. Knowing what is a good strategy almost comes down to 
Well, if the builders come out to suit what I'm doing, then that's great. If they don't, well, then they don't. And often, where you'd like to be able to guide your strategy in a certain way in the buildings you build, what you find you're doing is you're looking at that building board and saying, well, what can I afford to buy? Because I haven't really been able to plan or strategize to get a certain amounts of certain resources. I've just got I've got three brick and one glass, a couple of wood. What can I build with that? Oh, I can build one of these two buildings. I'll build that one. And very hard to string anything coherent together. That theme, Ronan, is there a theme? I mean, for me, it's almost like they play the game of pin the theme on the game. It's just they've spun someone around, given them five games, so there you go, stick a theme on that and we'll call it Glass Road. It makes no sense. There's nothing thematic about the game at all. It's just a exercise in mechanics, really. The artwork isn't great. It's all right. It, it does a job. But, yeah, theme and construction and artwork don't really do anything for me either in this game. I mean, I don't think it's any less thematic than a ton of other games that we play and like. What I think the issue is is that it doesn't seem to really matter how you follow that theme or you can't build a story of what you're doing there is nothing there to link it together so what you're doing all through the game also it's a very big limitation in scoring what you end up doing is you end up turning one and a half points into two points or two points into three points by every action you're taking and generally everyone that I've played with is going to end up between like 18 and 28 points somewhere depending upon what slight differences they've eked out so when you're trying to create that story for yourself of saying right i am going to create a grove based glass business here in which i'm going to take a lot of wood production in i'm going to use these builders to turn it around into this and therefore that's how i'm going to go scoring points you just can't do it it just doesn't happen it's not that the theme in itself is not that thematic it's the game feels unthematic as you play it because you're so constricted and the point scoring is so limited and you can't build a strategy so nothing really gets together yeah i don't want to make out that i absolutely despise this game because i really really don't it's okay it's a decent game i like the card selection mechanic Uh, i think it does give some excitement a bit of tension and that sort of laugh factor when you do pull out a card that other people have got is it a little bit too luck driven probably but that's not always a terrible thing in the game production wheels as Roland said they are interesting they're more than just functional they do give you something to think about but yeah it's just it just didn't push all the buttons for me again the car playing itself was interesting but what killed it was that the game was too slow you, you didn't get to do that car play often enough. It's similar to Witches Brew, another game, but in Witches Brew, the car play pretty much is everything. And you're getting a couple of resources, you turn it into potions here, there, and everywhere. But you get to make lots of these decisions. In this game, you're just choosing it four times over the course of an hour. And, you know, 15 minutes for a round of choosing five cards. You know, if I put it that way, maybe you can see the problem there. It's You've tied a fun card mechanic into a very bitty eking out a point here or there euro which is not very strategic and you can't really build a pattern in it's a game really of diminishing returns let me tell you the first time i played it i thought well this is a good game and you know what when i know this game better i'm gonna be able to tie things together and this could become very good i was really hopeful and every place since then i've got slightly 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 less enthusiastic about it 
I wouldn't refuse to play it. It's not terrible. It's just slumped into the, it's okay. Sure, you know, someone's going to score 23 points. Someone's going to score 22 and a half. That person won. Do I feel the best player won when I play it? No. In a lot of the games, it's just been the person who's been jammy enough to have someone else choose both their cards to be able to play five cards every round. You know, that's happened. They've won. Great. Well done to them. A pattern's not emerging for me. There's too much effort being put in for too little return. For me, it's all a bit for letdown. Yeah, for me, I think the game just feels like it was like a prototype collection of mechanics all sort of thrown together to see if they work and to a degree it actually does but it's not seamless i didn't mind my my games of this i I was quite glad to play it i was quite glad to see how it all worked i wouldn't buy it and i'd probably steer clear of it but if someone desperately wanted to play it i'd play it so that's a glass road Last up for this episode is Dungeon Roll, and it's a recent release, uh, last year in fact, which is 2013. The publisher is Tasty Minstrel Games, and it's designed by Chris Darden, and as far as I know, this was his first game. It plays one to four players in a playtime suggestion of 15 whole minutes. And what is it? It's a push-your-luck dungeon delve with dice. It was a mouthful. Uh, this game came through the kickstarter big system and it made a whopping two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and had over ten thousand backers so a massive massive success for the tasty minstrel games there so how do you play it you have two sets of dice to play with Um, one represents the heroes searching the dungeon and the other denizens of the dungeon the hero dice have champions fighters clerics mages thieves and they have scroll faces as well and the monster dice have dragon goblin skeleton ooze chest and potion faces so the game consists of four phases in each round the first phase is the monster phase where both sets of dice are rolled and any monster results not including the dragon must be immediately dealt with by the heroes So a champion can defeat any number of one type of monster. The fighter has the same ability but just against goblins. The cleric, the same against skeletons. The mage against ooze. Other than that, it's just one for one. The scroll result allows a hero player to re-roll any number of active party and dungeon dice in any combination. Then you move on to the loot phase. If you have a thief result on one of your dice, it can be used to open all chest results from the dungeon denizen's dice. This gives a player a lucky dip into the game box, which is handily shaped like a chest, where they pick out a bonus token. These bonus tokens could be a token that actually represents another hero player or other various little things you can get just to help you along your way. Also, potion results can be used to resurrect heroes from the graveyard. Now, the graveyard is where all the heroes go once they've been used to defeat a monster. Now, the dragon phase is next, and I haven't discussed the dragon results on the dice. You don't immediately fight the dragon every time it comes up, but they get put to one side. And when you have three of them, the dragon must then be fought. To defeat the dragon, the player must use three different types of hero. The reward is to have a dip in the treasure chest and the level dice gets raised by one point. 
Then you move on finally to the regroup phase. And this is the last phase. It has the following options. The player can retire and convert all the numbers on the level dice into experience points. Then your delve is over. The dice level, if it's at nine, you must retire, collect your experience points and become the stuff of legend. Or you can carry on with the dice remaining in the hero party, i.e. not in the graveyard, and raise the number on the level die by one. If the player dies in the round, all points from the delve are lost. So after three goes for each player, the game finishes and the person with the highest experience points win. There are levels also for solo players, so you can play it and you can get various sort of monikers attached to your character if you get to a certain amount of points. I also forgot to say that each player is a character with a special bonus ability and this can be upgraded by spending experience points. Ronan, off your pop, old son. Sean, this game raises a question for me. And that question is, what is the nature of a filler? And what does a filler mean to you and to your game group? Is a filler something which is there to fill a gap in an evening to fit in while you're waiting for someone to turn up or you've got 20 minutes spare what have you or do you want a time filler just literally that a time filler a waster of time something to do because you have nothing else to do what is it with dungeon roll you know what is the role of a filler what do you see a filler as Sean do you want to spend your time doing something useful or do you want to spend your time doing something just to waste time (laughs) um does a filler have to be a game? Because this isn't one. Well, I'll answer my own question. <laughs> <laughs> a filler for me is something I am doing to fill a gap in an evening. That's the game I describe as a filler. Right? If I'm not going to be playing a game, I will choose to take part in a different activity, whatever <laughs> it may be. Now, I know I'm about to go on a bit of a rant, so I'm going to make a little point here. Component-wise, this game was a bargain. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually got on my notes here, and I didn't follow them because I wasn't reading them properly. Get in before Ronan and say something good. <laughs> it's, got... <laughs> it's got lovely artwork. The box is beautiful. It looks amazing on the shelf. A little treasure chest. Dice quality whiz kids is actually really good this is what quarriers should have been and not the nonsense that they produced so there is something there to behold in the game but there's no choices how can it be a game if there's no choices you roll your dice assign them because it's obvious where you've got to assign them and what you've got to do the dice tell you what you've got to do and then that's it you push your luckers for what Every turn, every game I've ever played of this, it gets to four or five. There you go. That's it. Four or five. I, I, I have actually made some notes here because I'm going to try and make you know, treat it as a game. You're right. I have never seen anyone either get four, five, or zero. That's it. That's what you get. Okay. <laughs> In terms of no choices, Sean, I roll three dragons on my first roll. Have I just lost the game? Yes. Brilliant. That was one of my points. <laughs> sure. Do you ever, ever spend five of those between 12 and 15 points you're going to score in this game to level up your character? 
This is exactly the reason why I crowbarred the, that you actually do have a character at the end and that you have to spend experience points. Why would you ever, ever do that? You've got three turns where you're going to get four, five, or as Ronan said, zero. Why would you spend whatever it is? I can't even remember five, what it is. Five. It's, it's, oh, there you go. It's so ridiculous that you'd never entertain it so you don't stick in the memory. Five points. There you go. It's a third of your possible points. Gone. Bye. Okay. In what percentage of games do you think your character's ability has been of any use? You know what? The only character of any use, I think he might even be a Kickstarter exclusive, is the dude that gives you an extra dice. Just that's his ability. He gives you an extra dice and it comes with an extra dice. Broken. (laughs) I don't know. They're just so many of those character powers are so situation specific as to be a waste of ink have them on the cards which are a waste of card now ronan we i think we've only played this in a two-player uh, format can you imagine being <laughs> in a four-player game of this and having to wait <laughs> and having to wait and watch someone have not a lot of fun being an automaton this must go there. This must go there. I have no other options. That's what you're doing. You're just sitting and watching someone have not a lot of fun for, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes, whatever it takes. I'd sit there slack-jawed at how it's... anyone could sit there suffering through this. If you hadn't bought Gotten Little Fools, this would be the worst game <laughs> you'd ever bought. <laughs> Stop stealing my thunder. I was getting on to that. <laughs> I have all your backed... any Kickstarter stories. Yeah, no, come on. I have backed two Push Your Luck Dungeon Delve games, and they have both been horrific. This is still a hundred times better than Thank You. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God, little fools. I just got one more thing to put to you, Ronan. This game has an average BGG rating of 6.49. What's that about? No, no, that was my comment. <laughs> Disbelieving silence. Mate, I don't know. Sum up for me, Sean. I'm getting upset. What can you say? It's it's not a game. It looks nice. I would imagine that in a three or four player game, you'd be bored to tears. And I think on your very, very first go, Ronan, I think you actually summed it up quite nicely. He said, this isn't a game. It might be a mildly entertaining way to decide the first player. Uh, even then, everyone would get four or five. You'd have to play another game. <laughs> it's pure luck. If anyone brings it out, I would rather go to sleep or go and sing a song than play this. Okay, I think that's enough. <laughs> I can't go any further. Now, that was our musings <laughs> on Dungeon Roll. Well, there we have it. Four more games looked at and digested. So thank you for listening and hope to see you next time. The Game Pit is a very proud member of the Dice Tower Network, along with a whole host of other brilliant gaming podcasts. You can also catch us on 2d6.org. 
And if you want to have a chat or ask a question, we are on the Game Pit Podcast at gmail.com. And we can also be found on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast. And we have a, a Facebook page. It's the Game Pit Podcast on Facebook. So pop along there as well. Music by E. Aaron. <laughs> <laughs>